We are back with another episode of the After the Timeout podcast in partnership with the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association. Today's guest is Eddie Andrus, former collegiate and national team coach. We talked to Coach Andrus about the run and jump press, coaching internationally, preparing for championship games, and much, much more. As always, thank you for listening to the After the Timeout podcast. So, Coach, we start every every episode with the opening tip. Um, so I want to talk about, like, looking back at your long and tremendous career, uh, maybe something you're the most proud of. And then if, you know, if there's anything or maybe maybe there's not, but you would go back and maybe do differently. Maybe something you did when you were younger, something along the way. So, so those two things, something you're most proud of and something maybe you would have done differently if you had a, a chance to do it again. Well, the biggest thing, the biggest thing I would say is that what's really been good for me in my career, and I appreciate you saying tremendous career as coaches, we never, ever believe it's tremendous enough. We'd like a few more wins, a few more championships uh, to go with what we have done. But, you know, just the fact that I'm, I've been very flexible in my career. And one of the things I really enjoyed, you know, I've been able to coach all around the world. And that has been really, uh, really a wonderful experience, not only for me, but a wonderful experience for my family. And, you know, the whole Qatar experience, I know we'll talk a little bit about that, but, uh, you know, most, a lot of coaches don't get that opportunity. And I certainly have been very fortunate. I don't know if I'm just as much proud of it as I just am thankful for the opportunity to uh, have coached all over the world. So with you, we, we run into, obviously, you know, I've heard you speak before. You, you've spoken, again, all around the world about run and jump. So we're going to focus a little bit with you on run and jump and then and kind of get into some other areas of your coaching career. But let, let's kind of start off with the run and jump. So, you know, first, my first question, and we we kind of ask this for anybody that, you know, has something they really, um, really use their whole career. I guess for you first why the run and jump over the other presses and then let's kind of start off with maybe why did you start using it well first of all you know i think as a, at a very young age i've always been that guy that wanted to operate outside the box uh, i always felt like uh i needed to get up to speed with offenses and defenses but i felt like the run and jump was first of all i think it's really easy to teach uh it's, it's a press that all you have to do is find kids that'll run I don't mean run, you know, full speed for 32 or 38 or 40 minutes a game, but, but they can run. In other words, they can't, you can't have a team that's super slow and obviously be able to do the run and jump. But the biggest reason the run and jump is because I think it's extremely easy to teach. I still do a lot of teaching around the country with the run and jump. And I've, you know, I used it in Qatar. I've used it at the college level. I used it at the high school level. And because it's easy to teach, I think it's easy to adjust. So all of a sudden something happens in the game that you need to take away. You may have never worked on, never practiced, but it doesn't matter. It's easy to adjust because your kids have been taught an open system to begin with. You know, I've never been that guy, never wanted to be that guy that was A to B to C to D. And as coaches and as players, we have all been, that's how we've been raised, A to B, the C to D, you know, when A goes here, B's got to go there. C's there, D's got to go there. I've never liked that. 
uh, kind of an analogy with transition game, some of your best transition coaches have always said, I would rather you make a play than run a play. And I think there's a lot of value to that. So the thing is, the run and jump is, is that kind of a press where you, you don't, the, the, you go, or the biggest thing you have to do with the kids is get them to open up their mind because they want to ask the same questions. Coach, should I have gone there? Should I have trapped? Should I have done this? And as a coach, you can't be continually saying, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. You should have done this, you shouldn't do that. You know, because once you start putting up those roadblocks in their minds, then all of a sudden they start locking up and they can't run. And, and the bottom line is, if you're going to press, you want to be able to have a situation where the kids are free. So what, what kind of, uh, in the, maybe in the beginning of their career, what were you noticed immediately were some strengths? And then I, you did say it was easy to teach, but what are maybe a couple or, or one or so things that are maybe some more challenging for kids to pick up, maybe not necessarily teach, but for the kids to pick up? Well, the thing that we want to make sure of when we are teaching it is that all you're teaching them is how to run with the ball without fouling because fouling negates us, so we know that. The second thing you want to do is you want to get them to be able to rotate in accordance with where the rim is and where the basketball is. A lot of times you have kids, you know, looking at the ball and the ball gets ahead of them and they stop running. You want to teach them not be in that situation where they continue to run because so they're still five on five. It's still a situation where you're still in control. Second thing you, or the third thing you want to do is protect the rim. You want to make sure that that rim is protected at all times. And if you protect the rim and if you don't foul and they're going to miss some shots and you get the rebound, you've done your job because fatigue becomes a big part of this game. Now, what will teams try to do against us? Well, they'll try to clear out. They'll try to make, bring the ball in. Everybody runs down the floor or they will try to space the floor a little bit more. They won't maybe clear out as much, but they will space the floor. So it's really hard to jump or trap. The third thing they'll try to do, which I think is uh, goes back to the officiating is they will try to veer into you to draw a foul. You're running alongside them. They bang into you and the official, what I would consider somewhat of a weak official would call a foul on the defense. I actually have film of one of our players in college now, we're talking college officials and God bless them. They have a tough job. But our bottom line is our guy was running straight away from the ball. He wasn't running alongside. He was trying to get away, away from the guy and the guy chased him down and banged into him. The official called a defensive foul. <laughs> I, I could not believe it, but that's what, that's what teams will try to do. So what we have developed with the run and jump a little bit is we've kind of gone into more of a zone concept when they try to clear us out, we, we call this our 21, where we keep a guy right in the middle of the floor, which really stops them from clearing us out. So, Coach, before we want to go on to the next question, I want to follow up on something you, you said earlier and, and freeing your player's mind. Um, you know, John and I talk about this all the time, you know, talking about our players. Well, I'm supposed to go here and I'm supposed to go there. Should I done this? Should I done that? And not necessarily, uh, you know, especially at, you know, I'm at the college level, they come from different programs, they come from different high schools, they come from different places. So how did you go about, you know, freeing your player's mind? And, you know, a lot of times we're just like, well, you just got to play basketball, right? Um, so how did you kind of encourage that and maybe bring that out in your players? 
it all boils down to the coach. It's such an important part of your coaching style. The thing is, I always tell our kids, there's a method to our madness. In other words, it's not, you know, you don't want to get that, that, that attitude where we're just, we're just playing pickup ball. You know, we're just playing motion offense, run, jump, press, switching everything on the man-to-man, which you're going to do some of that, but you still want to have a method to the madness. What are we trying to accomplish? But it's how you teach when you teach. And what happens is, is that coaches will make that mistake. I tell coaches all the time in our camps, you know, they're always blowing the whistle. They're always stopping play. You should have done that. You should have done this. Well, let's take a look at this. And, and, and if you want to run a system where you're trying to fatigue your opponent, you can't keep stopping the, the play in practice because now you're teaching the kids to stop. And you're not, you're not letting them get in condition in order to be able to run in transition and to press in, in, on the defense. So a lot of it has to do, if not all of it, has to do with how you teach what you, you know, I've always said that for many, you know, for many years of my coaching career, it's not what you teach that's as important as how you teach. Now, what you teach is very important, but how you teach is even more important. So you've got to free those kids up and still throw in little nuggets of advice and things that they need to look for. But rather than say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, it's more like, let's take a look at this and see what are some options here that we can try in this situation. So let, I want to talk about personnel a little bit in the run jump. Um, you know, did you prefer big, small, um, certain characteristics for certain positions in your run and jump, different things like that? You know, it, it, it's not preferring because at, at the, especially at the high school level, you kind of get who you've got, you know, unless you're in a program where, you know, I know it's a lot easier for kids to move around now, but uh, the thing is, is that as I've, when I spoke at many, many clinics over the years, I would always kind of tell the subtle joke that one time I did have a coach say, coach, I have seven kids. They're all really big and they're really slow. And I said, well, it does, can, we, can we run and jump press? And I said, well, it really doesn't matter what you do because you're going to lose anyway. And then, of course, everybody laughs. And I said, no, not, not really. But the thing is, is that that's, that's tough. You know, if you've got a lot of slow kids, you've you got to be able to run. It's, it's hard to press no matter what. But the other thing I would say in my, in my clinics to coaches, I would say, how many coaches here press? And as you guys, I'm sure, would uh, guess, about 50% of the coaches said they pressed. 50% didn't. And I said, okay, which means 50% of my audience was not listening anymore because they don't press. And I said, okay, so what do you do when you're down 10 with two minutes to go or 15? Well, of course, everybody presses. Everybody, everybody who's a high school coach presses. They think they don't, but they do. So it's just a matter of what kind of press you're going to run. So the thing is, obviously, if we have great athletes, if we have athletes that are quick and speed and can really get after it, that's going to be great for the press. However, first of all, we don't always get what we want. And second of all, if you have athletes like that, you can run anything you want. You're probably going to win. So the thing is, is that what the, what the run and jump press does, you can have some marginal athletes. You can have one or two slow players. You just can't have a whole squad of them. But the thing is, you are, one of the things we teach, which sounds kind of funny, most kids do not know how to run. They do not know how to run. And you have to teach them how to run the floor, how to stay away from the ball, 
and just make sure you're squeezing it in spots and then trap in different trap angles, how to trap with technique and how to rotate. And that's, that, that's my answer to, you know, what type of personnel, because like I said, we all would love great athletes, but I, the, one of the big myths in the run and jump press is, well, we have to have great athletes to do that. As a matter of fact, if I had a high school team right now and we, we, did, we didn't have, we were kind of weak, our skill set was poor, we'd be pressing uh, 40 minutes a game or 38, whatever, uh, 36, whatever the high school thing is right now. We'd be pressing full time. I'd be running probably eight, nine, 10 kids, even if there's some freshmen in there. Because the faster you the faster you develop your kids, the more successful your program becomes. So you kind of touched on our second part. So I'm gonna I'm gonna again kind of get off get off topic. And you said you teach kids how to run, um, and I, I think that's such a that's such an interesting thing because a lot of coaches run 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 run, you know, like you hear it all the time. So how did you how did you go about teaching your kids how to go run? And and was it angles? Was it you know, anticipation. How did you kind of teach that that skill? Another thing, what's really good about that is repetition, repetition, repetition. You can have someone in, with a ball at the free throw line going full court. You have a player run towards them as in, in a closeout, which you've, we've all done. Then that ball takes off, and the player run, turns and runs with them. Well, like most players, it's not just running; it's about your feet. Most players, what will they do? They become a helicopter. They become a plane. They make a they make us a, a corner, right? Versus a pivot. So we teach them how to step and step in the direction that they're running. The second thing we teach in terms of running is how to shade, not steer. When I hear the word steer, I think you're giving them too much, too much of an angle. Shade means that you're playing on the the outside or the inside shoulder and getting and then you know which way they're going because you're making them go that way. If I know, and, and again, I'm a pretty old guy, and I tell, the, I tell the, the kids, I said, if I know where he's going, at least I have a chance. If I don't know where he's going, I have no chance. So it's all about shading the ball to an area, pivoting and stepping in that direction, not being that helicopter who makes a wide turn and then running down the floor with the basketball. So let's really talk about, and, and you may have an example, you may have a specific example, or it may be more vague, but, you know, you kind of touched on some things coaches do to counter it, but really, what were some things in, in your career as you coached it in the at the collegiate level that you saw were some things that, you know, were successful against it? And an interesting, maybe a little bit of a twist, if you were coaching against your own run and jump, what would you do? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing, the number one thing that coaches do against run and jump is they clear out. They throw the ball into the guard. Everybody runs down the floor. Now they take you out of a situation where you can run and jump. It's hard to jump the ball. It's certainly hard to trap the ball because you got everybody down the floor. But you don't have to have all your defenders to run down the floor. The other four players on the run and jump can almost get into a, a zone situation so that like two guys can cover four guys or two guys can cover three guys. So that's what, that's what we, that's what we go to. And the thing is, is that when you go to that, oftentimes the defense, the offense has to bring somebody back and then you're right back into the run and jump. So that's what I would try and see what they would do with the, uh, with the spacing, with trying to clear out. The second thing is they would just space. In other words, 
throw the ball into the guard, and then have two guys run, you know, 20, 25 feet away and be available for the pass, which again makes for a long jump and a long trap. And another thing you have to realize is we work really hard at the run and jump and the half court scramble so that we can get some traps and some rotations in the half court or once the ball crosses half court. So the one thing nice about the 10 second count is we get the, the offense has 10 seconds to get to that line. And so that again, makes it an advantage for the defense. You just gotta know what are we gonna try to accomplish here once the ball crosses half court. So um, let's talk about the offensive side to match with the run and jump. Um, you know, one, how do you feel the, the run and jump can help your offense grow and be successful? And then the second part of that is, do you feel it's important for coaches to like do their offense and defense as one unit or kind of separate things, depending on what you have going on personnel wise? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you what I've seen across the board with a lot of teams that run the run and jump that I've run camps for. I, I follow about 20 to 25 teams a year on, on the computer in terms of watching their games. They send me their huddle. I watch some of their pressing situations and what they're looking for, give them some ideas on what's going on. And what I, what I see a lot of is coaches that press, they like transition. They like to run. And I'm all for that because fatigue is what we're trying to create with the press. Believe it or not, we're not the number one criteria in the press is not to steal the ball. If you think steal, you will foul and you will get out of position. So what happens is, is that if we have that mindset where we're just trying to run you off the press, then it would probably behoove us to run the ball up the floor. Once we either you score or we get it back on a rebound or we do get a steal. So the thing is, is that more often than not, you'll see teams that like to press, they like to run. And I totally agree with that. What I don't agree with that is the turnover situation. I'm not a big turnover guy. One of the things Bo Ryan taught this country of quite a few years ago is that I used to think, oh, if I had 15 turnovers a game, I, had, I was doing a heck of a job and the team was doing a heck of a job. Bo Ryan taught us that numbers should be more like five turnovers a game. Well, Five turnovers a game is tough, but the thing is, is that if you create that mentality with your team and they understand that turnovers are not acceptable, then all of a sudden they will come down automatically as, as long as you're part of the solution and not part of the problem. So my philosophy is I think your offense needs to tailor itself to your personnel. However, with that said, remember, there's a lot of dead ball situations. A lot of after score situations where the other team is back and and the rule the rule in offense is you better be a good east west team and not just a north south team because some good team is going to be able to stop you from going north and south so i i tend to lean more towards an offense that fits my personnel versus just transition and running running gun and just throw it up I have, a, I have a quick follow-up. I, I thought something you just said was really, really good, and I wanted you to expound for some of our listeners. What Can you expound a little bit on what you mean by becoming a better East-West scoring team? I think we understand North-South, but just a little bit more on East-West. Rick Majerus, who was one of the greatest coaches of all time, he always said that the success of your offense 
is not on the first side, not on the second side, not even on the third side. It was on the fourth and fifth side of the ball. Well, that's going east and west. How many times can you swing the ball from the right side of the floor to the left side of the floor and get the defense moving? When you're a run and gun team, obviously you don't do a lot of that. Uh, doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean run and gun's not good. I like it as well as anybody else. But Rick Majerus always said that the success of your offense against a really good team will come on the fourth and the fifth side of the floor. So um, this is kind of a segment we call halftime adjustments. So let's let's talk about the running run and jump. Um, you know, you get halftime halftime buzzer goes off. You're looking at it, and maybe your your team is, is struggling a little bit, not maybe doing exactly what you want to do, or not getting the results out of the run and jump. Um, a team's doing something specific that's giving you trouble. Um, so what are kind of some of the things you looked at, at at halftime or the adjustments you wanted to make? I know you mentioned some of your half court stuff, maybe some trapping there and and putting them in different positions. So how did you go about kind of making those adjustments at halftime if maybe what you initially thought would work or what you're trying to do wasn't working? The first thing you subscribe to in halftime adjustments is, is the rule of three. And the rule of three means that usually your kids are able to handle three adjustments at halftime and no more. Now, it doesn't mean we've never done four. It doesn't mean we've never done five. But if you can keep it to the rule of three, you have a much greater chance of being successful. So that usually means one or two things on offense, one or two things on defense. Let me give you an example of the press. All of a sudden, the team we're playing, they've been attacking our middle off the press a lot. They just They have a player that stands there and doesn't move and, they, and when, our, when our press rotates, then obviously they throw it to that person in the middle and we can't get to them. But what happens, what happens is a simple adjustment then, and I probably would have made it even before halftime, is I have the player that's, because usually that player from the middle comes out and sets the sideline trap. So he leaves the man in the middle. Because even though this is a man-to-man -man press, it is a rotating man-to-man -man press. It's a run and jump. It's a run and trap. So what I would do is I would leave, I would say there's no rotating out of the middle and then we would trap from behind. In other words, the player that was on the ball pushing it sideline, he would cut the ball off or level the ball off and we would trap from behind. That would be a simple adjustment. Now, like I said, I use as an example as, as an adjustment you can make. I probably would have made that prior to halftime at one of the timeouts. Offense might be a situation where we haven't touched the short corner enough or we haven't I see something, a wrinkle that we can use that we have worked on in our offense that, that will make us more effective, that I think will make us more effective so I can make that adjustment. But I'll tell you, I think a lot of times, a lot of coaches go in and they're just talking 100 miles an hour, drawing a million uh, diagrams on the board. To trust me, I've done it, so I know exactly what, what not to do. And the thing is, the kids are looking at, you know, let, let's go, you know, and, they, and nothing sticks. And so... The rule of three has always been a good rule. So I'm, well, laughing. I'm laughing because I've done that. <laughs> oh, we've all done that. Well, uh, I, I want to follow a little bit and just something that I that I've thought about throughout the you know throughout throughout the years is, you know, you, you talked about those adjustments, but obviously you have have to work on them, right? So how do you kind of even if it's something you maybe not have worked on a lot, how do you kind of incorporate those things into your practices, right? 
um, and and get your players to kind of have seen it before or, or, or recognize what we're trying to do. So when it, it gets to that situation, it's not as a drastic right adjustment, like something they've never, never seen before. Because there's so many situations you could go over in practice. You can't go over all of them. But I, I and I think I probably know a little bit of the answer. You're talking about, you know, getting them out of their minds and getting them to read. But how, how would you work on that throughout the year so they're better able to adjust when you make those adjustments? The practice after each game, half of the practice is dedicated to going over what we had just seen. In other words, the game that we have just played the night before, there's probably five or six or seven, eight things that, that gave us trouble. And it's it very unlikely that we play anybody that doesn't give us trouble in something. So you have your practice plan already set for the next day in terms of rehearsal of what we saw the night before. So if there's two or three things they did, two or three things they did in the press, then we work on those specific things. If there's two or three things they did, half court defense, then we work offensively on those things. And that's, it's more of, almost, it's almost, it's kind of a walk through into a, a speed, into more of a game like speed, but we're not going up and down very much. We're kind of showing them exactly how we, how we would normally uh, cover this. And I'll tell you, the kids get used to that and they like it because it automatically tells them that, hey, we're going we're gonna to make those corrections. And now they've seen them. They've seen them. So we really want to talk about your experience in Qatar. Um, you know, uh, my first question is, before we go into the whole experience, how did that experience come about? You know, that question has come to me like a, like a million plus five times because it's a great question. And Dave Buss, who used to be the head coach at UW-Green Bay, he was assistant at UNLV, assistant coach at West Virginia, and then he finished his career the head coach of St. Olaf in Minnesota. And timing is so crazy with things like this. I was, I go, I've, I've gone to the final four about 14 times in my, in my lifetime. And I always see Dave there. And I saw Dave at, at the final four. And I said, we always got together for a cup of coffee or a beer. And we would talk about the hoops and he was still coaching at the time. And I said, Dave, I remember that he had coached overseas. I said, Dave, you've coached overseas. I said, where did you coach? And do you have any contact with them? Because I'd kind of like to take a, take a look at coaching overseas for a while. He said, no, he said, I coached the Qatar. I haven't talked to them in 10 years. And so there's nothing I can do for you because I haven't talked to them. I said, okay, but you know, if anything ever comes up, let me know. But when I, by the time I landed from the final four that Tuesday, Dave Buss called me, Qatar had called him looking for a coach. What, what, what's the possibility of that happening? Mm -hmm. But then as they say, the rest is history. They were looking for a coach. I got connected with my manager, uh, Rashid, and we made, made the deal and, and off to the Doha I, I went. And uh, I tell you, I was a little nervous going to the Middle East and, you know, kind of sight unseen. But I'll tell you what a wonderful experience. I got to take my family with me a couple of different times. I got to compete to, to play in the Olympics at the Olympic qualifier. We won two gold medals in the golf and the Asian. Uh, great basketball, great competition. And it was so nice to coach. And I had nothing else to do but coach. I had 
no fundraising, no recruiting, uh, you know, no, didn't have to schedule the meals. I had a manager for that. And when I say manager, like a baseball manager, that, that kind of manager, he took care of everything, flights and the whole, the whole nine yards. Awesome. So, uh, so you're there, you know, you know, what was it, what was it like to coach more on the national level? Um, and then my second part to that is we've talked to, I'm trying, trying to think, but Todd and I have talked to coaches from Guam and Germany and, and different parts uh, of around the world. Maybe what were some things that you took from that experience coaching that the players there, the coaches there do that we should do more of in the United States? Well, the one thing I figured out right away is I had a, my point guard didn't speak English. That was kind of tough. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys will ever have to worry about that, but uh, the, what was really good about it was the, the players, this was their job. So the thing is, is that, you know, in coaching at the professional level, it's, 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 it's not about a lot of yelling and screaming, which I'm not a yeller and a screamer anyway, but it was, it's more about we're in this together and let's see if we can win these tournaments. When, when we played the Asian, China was a favorite easy. I mean, China was seven, four, seven, two, seven foot, six, 11. My tallest guy was six, 11. And China was a favorite and we played them in pool play. We're down 12 with about 10 minutes to go in the game. And I went to a, a, a 21 matchup. I call it two, three matchup zone. China had no idea what to do with it. And we won by a dozen, I think. So then we met China in the semifinals of the tournament. As you know, it goes pool play, uh, pool play, then semifinals and finals. And uh, we played China again. I thought, well, this isn't going to work because they have had a little chance to work on it. Sure as heck, we're down 10 or a dozen with 10 minutes to go. And I said, well, I was going to give it a shot. And we won, we won the, we won them, beat them in the semis uh, to go on to the final against Korea. But what's really, what, 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 what I certainly found out about the foreign experience is what it's like to just be a coach and not have to deal with meals, uniforms. You, uh, you guys know. You know, everybody listening is going to know what we're talking about. You, you wear 5,000 hats. And I always told people, I said, you know, people, people told me for years, for 100 years since I've been coaching, you look so relaxed during the game. I said, are you kidding me? The great the game is fun. You know, after all the stuff you go to to get there with academic checks, grades, clothes, travel, you name it. And now you get to coach the game. That's the fun. And so it, what you learn in overseas is it's at the professional level, boy, is it nice to just be able to coach and not have to do all the other stuff. And I don't mind. I, I like to work, so I don't mind doing all the other stuff, but it was nice not having to do it. Todd and I always say the easiest part of coaching is the coaching. Exactly. Without, without yeah. question. We actually just, me and John just talked about this today, like being on break, both of us. And, you know, it's kind of just, and you just, you don't have to, to, you know, go to school. You don't have to do all that other stuff. You're just living the basketball coach's life and just worrying about basketball. It's kind of, it's kind right. of fun. It is nice. So, um, you know, coach, you, sh you share the game in so many ways. I mean, like this is, man, I'm texting John on the side here. Like this is, this is so awesome. There's so many ways we can go, but I kind of wanted to ask you, why is it important for you to, to share the game so much. Um, and then I'll kind of go in, into a second part of this question. 
Well, it's kind of like, you know, and you guys, I know, feel the same way. It's about giving back to the profession. Let's, let's be honest. I have traveled the world because of basketball. I have over a thousand family basketball family members because of, of basketball, because of athletics. So why would you not give back to other coaches? I talk to coaches pretty much every day, a lot, lot to do with the run and jump, but I talk to coaches a lot every day and share nuggets of things that I think, things that I, that I see, things that, that I feel are important. Uh, philosophy, even though, and I always preface it by, I'm not the guy coaching your team, you are, but I'll tell you what I think. And then if you throw it away, that's cool because that you have to decide what you're doing. So giving those nuggets of information, because I've been around a long time, I've seen a lot and I certainly can share my experiences, especially with a lot of younger coaches who are just starting. You know, I had guys like Bo Ryan and Dick Bennett who were good friends of mine that shared a lot of their nuggets with me. I went to a lot of clinics. I worked a lot of basketball camps. And it was one big nugget sharing informational pod that we had going every night in the dorms of camp with the coaches. We have a coaching clinic. And so you can never share enough because there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat, hundred different ways to attack a zone. Everybody has a different idea and they're all good. You just gotta decide which one fits you. So that's a perfect answer to kind of transition to the next uh, question I have. Uh, I'm going to tweak it a little bit, but obviously it's 2023. There's so many outlets, right? You can find anything anywhere. You talked about watching video earlier and there's so there, I just learned like of three other video outlets that are, that are coming up um, and social media and all these things. Um, so, so first of all, how do you think you can best use that? And then, there's, you know, you talked about all those nuggets. How did you uh, go about filtering that information and kind of deciphering what was what was best for you? And, and you know, because it can be information overload at times. And that's, and you, you almost gave the answer that you cannot allow information overload. In other words, you have to say, okay, I'm going to spend one hour each day, 90 minutes each day, and I'm going to, I'm going to watch video, and I'm going to scour the computer and look at some things and go on the internet and look at some, how to break a one, three, one, how to run offense here, or how to run defense there, or how to run the run and jump or whatever. But you've got to limit yourself to what you think you can handle. And then uh, I cannot tell you the number of times I'll, when I go and I watch information, I am a big time student of the game. I still am. I watch video every day. I look at the internet every day. And the thing is, I don't even have a you know, specific team that I'm working on. But I, I cannot tell you the number of times I'll see something and I'll say, man, why didn't I think of that? That is pretty creative. You know, that's really outside the box. I'm always looking for outside the box stuff. But with that said, everything, you have to have that, that, in, that intestinal fortitude of knowing everything on paper works. Every video works. Everything on paper works. They always say in a coaching clinic or a coach is talking on the whiteboard, it's the last guy with the, with the magic marker that wins because he's the one that writes the last play on the board. He's the one that always wins. So the thing is, you just cannot allow it to be overloaded. So I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow again because um, so when you saw something, you're, you're looking, you're, you find video, and when you were coaching, you saw something, hey, that kind of fits our system or that's an interesting tweak. How did you go about kind of deciding of – 
yeah, maybe we're gonna we're gonna put that in. What was your kind of checklist of this is something we could we could do, this is something that fits what we're doing, this is something that might work for us. When I I kind of was a little different when I would watch video or watch or go on the internet. I would look for little wrinkles that would help our team out, especially during the season. You can't go, oh, okay, I love that offense. We're going to do that one. And then a week later, oh, I love that offense. Now we're going to do that one. Because that, as you guys know, that doesn't work. But what happens is I would always look for a tweak. Like I would see something like, for instance, the dribble drive. I'm not a big dribble drive guy, even though I know it's a, it's a very popular offense. But there are certain parts of the dribble drive I used because I really liked it. You know, the drive and pitch, the pitch hit, I would use that. I would use that even as part of a play, part of an action. Uh, I would look for ways that we could utilize just parts. So that's what I would do. I would, I would kind of dissect what I'm looking at and probably never, ever took the whole thing uh, A, to, A to B to C to D because I don't like that anyway, but just took wrinkles out of it to say, this, what we're doing right now, this will help that. So this is something we we've never hit on with a guest, and we've had uh, you know almost a hundred guests at this point. But you know you've coached in a lot of big games, a lot of championship games, etc. Um, for you in those games, and maybe this changed when you were a young coach. I think we all were a little bit more. We've all we all calm a little bit with age. But how did you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for those big games? You know whether it was early in your career, later in the career, um, and then you know, specifically just for the coach with themselves, you know, we have a lot of things to prepare our kids, but for a young coach out there, maybe it's their first conference championship game, or it's their first regional championship game or, or whatever it is. How did, how did they kind of prepare themselves for those bigger games to kind of stay focused, calm, uh, and not get too in overboard? Getting yourself prepared mentally is everything. And so what I've always said is that during the year, you have got to talk to your team and convince yourself over and over again that every game is exactly the same. We know it's not true. We know we're going into sectional final to go to state. It's really hard to, to con convince yourself. But if you've, if you've done it the entire year and you've stayed within a certain range of emotions throughout the entire year, you can, you, you're ready. You're mentally trained to do that. Because I honestly believe that no game is more important than the other. And if you lose, you lose. If you win, you win. And you've got to convince your team of that. And you got to convince yourself of that. Because your job as a coach for yourself and for your players, you don't want to get too high and you don't want to get too low. You want to stay as steady as you can now. How steady is that? You're going to have some up bumps and some low bumps. And the thing is, we know that. But you have got to preach that from day one that whether we're playing Menominee Junior High or we're playing the Boston Celtics, it is the same game. And the thing is, is that if you say it enough times to yourself, you will convince yourself of that to a point. Like I said, I know it's easier said than done, but if you all of a sudden at the exceptional final, you're a nervous wreck, you probably just really hurt your team. Does that make sense? Oh, totally, totally. So, um... We've asked this question to a lot of coaches and we get a lot of different answers, but we always think it's interesting as well because uh, you said there's different ways to skin a cat. So how did you use your assistance over the years, whether it was recruiting, practice, games, uh, and maybe how did it change 
over your career. I'll tell you, you got another hour. <laughs> I'm kidding. Hey, we, we got as long as you want, Coach. Yeah, let's go. Here's here's the deal. When I first started coaching, I was I did it all. I had assistant coaches. Stay out of my way. Stand on the sideline. Watch your watch. You know, I'm running this thing because I know exactly what I want and I don't trust you. Big mistake, terrible mistake. And I will tell you, you are only as good as your assistant coaches. If you don't believe that, I believe you're wrong. If you don't understand that, I believe you're wrong. And, and if you just take who you get, a lot of times we'll get assistant coaches and we just take them because they happen to be the guy standing closest to the gym door. Well, the thing is, is that you need to recruit quality assistant coaches. They might be a really good friend, but someone that you can trust, someone that will be extremely loyal. And what you do is you give that person, you talk to that person and find out what are they strong at? What do they feel good about? Are, are they good offensively? Are they good defensively? Are they good at conditioning? Are they good in the weight room? Whatever they bring to the table, you want to make sure that's something that they are in charge and you need to give them a specific title of responsibility that they can sink their teeth into. Then you need to hold them accountable and you need to praise them. And I will tell you, there's obviously more we can talk about, but you need to demand loyalty. And I will tell you from experience, and I'm talking from the experience of being an assistant coach. And I screamed at one of my assistants years ago. I said, you have all the answers. As an assistant coach, you have all the answers. You know exactly how to win, exactly why we lost, what we should do in practice. I said, when I was an assistant coach, I had all the answers. The head coach didn't know anything. Uh, he always made mistakes. I wouldn't have done that. Because I know as an assistant coach, I never lost a game. But it's interesting when you go the three feet from the assistant's chair to the head chair, all of a sudden you travel a great deal of distance. So you have to, assistants have to understand, 100, not 95%, not 99%, 100% loyalty to the program. It's okay to disagree, but you disagree with me, and we disagree together, and maybe we come up with a conclusion, but you've got to be there, and you've got to give them uh, responsibility. Otherwise, they'll just stand on the sideline and you'll lose it. So I kind of want to follow on that a little bit, John. Sorry. I want, I want to follow on that. You, you talked about the disagreement part. Uh, you know, and obviously that's important to be kind of behind the scenes in your, in your office when you're on the court, your uniform, right? But how did you go about, uh, I guess, facilitating those conversations, right? Because I think that's an important part of an assistant coach too, not necessarily having a, a yes man because you have a yes man then, Correct. right? Everything's the same, nothing gets better. So how did those conversations go about? And when your assistant brought you something, you kind of hashed it out and said, you know, you, maybe you had your counterpoints to it, well, this and that. Um, were you looking for them to have specific, uh, you know, maybe video? Were you looking for them to have specific stats? Was it, or or just, you know, they had a good solid reasoning and they could show it on the court. And, and that's kind of how you kind of worked it out. The first thing is you establish the rules and here are the rules. I'm the head coach and you are the assistant, even if you're an associate head coach. So the bottom line is, is what we do on the court is a reflection of me. And so therefore I want you to come to me every time you feel like you'd like to see us change something or you, you disagree with that situation. But remember, at the end of the day, I will make the final decision. We will make it together from the standpoint, I need you for knowledge. I need you for conversation. I need you to give me ideas. But even in the game, I want you to say, coach, maybe we could take a time out here. No, I think I'm going to wait. 
but I appreciate and you make sure they understand that every time they come to you, you appreciate them coming to you with advice because advice is good, but you still have the rule is the head coach still has to make the final decision and they have to be able to live with that. And that's not always easy. I, I really like something you said, and I'm actually going to keep it where you said it's okay to disagree with me and we disagree together. I thought, I thought that was a, just a absolutely, but, but well said. Um, so as we move into our last two segments, the first one we call 30 second timeout. Uh, this is your opportunity to discuss whatever topic you want. Uh, it could be about yourself or your family or something you're passionate about or something outside of basketball or, or turn the tables and ask Todd and I a question. Uh, but it, it's your 30 seconds, quote unquote, 30 seconds. You can go as long as you want, but to kind of talk about whatever topic you'd like. Well, I'd like to stick a little bit with basketball. One of the things that I think about that coaches need to, that coaches need to understand about coaching is before the game starts, before the season gets rolling or as the season rolls, coaches have to come up with ideas about how they're gonna handle situations. I cannot tell you the number of times that I've seen coaches, they get into a situation and they have no idea what they're going to do. And I'll give you an example of that. And there's, there's a million different situations, so you can't do them all, but at least you gotta be, got be able to attack some of them. I'll give you a situation. And I'll ask you guys, what, if you're up three with 10 seconds to go, in the game and the other team's bringing the ball off the floor, what's your philosophy? And there is no wrong answer. What's your philosophy? Go ahead. How many, how many fouls do I have to give? Correct. Uh, you're out. You, you have none to give. I'm up three with 10 seconds to go. I have none to 10 give. 10 seconds to go and, the, and it's double bonus for both teams. You know, I, I'm of the, I'm of the uh, foul. That's me. I would also agree on foul, but I would also say that that is something you have to have practice because Correct. Inevit inevitably they're going to try to foul in the wrong situation, give up a three-point shot, and uh, and go from there. I also think you probably need to look at personnel and who you're going to foul. Um, you know, if you can try to foul a, a free throw shooter that's not very good, and they're most likely going to going to miss one or um, that's going to burn time off because I don't feel like at least at the high school level, even even at the D3 college level, a lot of teams have a end of game free throw plan, you know, right? Exactly. Um, that's kind of where where I would go. But it, it would definitely be have to be something we've talked about. And you, and you would. Exactly. You would, yep, you would practice it. You would Correct. be part of your philosophy. Well, Correct. just so you guys know you're in the minority. Yeah. They, they uh, when they they. Uh, Surveyed coaches, over 60% would not foul. Greg, right. who's one of the best coaches in the country, Bo Ryan, one of the best coaches in the country, will not foul when, when they're up three with under. And I've seen them lose games. But I will tell you this. Uh, Brad Stevens, who used to be the head coach of the Celtics, he's a big analytics guy. He proved analytically that, you, that if you foul, you win more games than, you, than if you don't foul. And okay. I... I will tell you, 30 years ago, when I lost my last game, I didn't foul. They banged the three, and we got beat by 14 in overtime. I said I would never let that happen again, and I'm in the, in the next 30 years, I'm 20-0. and 0. I've I never know. lost a game by fouling. And you're right, Todd, you need, to, you need to practice it. But there are things – but, again, you still have to have – you have to sit down as a coach, as a young coach, 
old coach, medium coach, and you got to think about situations because I've seen coaches. I saw a coach lose a game because you could tell they didn't. They never really thought, do we fall? Should we fall? And they didn't fall. And the team that the team came down and hit three free throws, they, they fouled on an offensive rebound. They hit three free throws with a half a second to go and, and then scored an out-of-bounds underplay with a half a second to go and, and won in regulation against the team that had did not foul. They did not want to foul. They, they, they tried not to foul. They played grade D, et cetera. So I, I really think a lot of coaches don't think about this until it happens, which sometimes, oftentimes, is too late. And I think that's important. I think one Coach, of the- I, I'm, I'm going to expand on this because this is a great topic. I even thought, and I, we talked about John. John was at our game at Benedictine now. And we, you know, I, I was talking with our head coach about we were kind of down, what, I think it was like six, John, right? Something like that. Yes. Like a minute left. And, and they had some free throw shooters that weren't great free throw shooters, right? So even like, hey, we didn't have any fouls to give, but we got to extend this game. Maybe we can pressure, if we don't get a steal, foul this person. They miss a free throw. We got a chance to come back down and score and, and extend the game. You know, I, I think you think about uh, Brad Stevens. I think Todd Golden, right, is another one of those that yeah. that kind of recently has has done that. So, yeah, I think those are all things to think about, and you got to kind of throw them into your, your philosophy. And when you decide to do it, like this is what we're going to do. I think so some coach. So, well, go ahead, Ron or John. Excuse me. I, well, I was just going to say, I think one of the, the key things to think about, if you want to think about it analytically as well, is to make the three, it's it's one one action. It's coming down to making the three. To to fall, it's a first I got to hit one, then I got to miss the right way, then I got to get the rebound, and then I got to put it back in. If any of those things go wrong, that's it. The scenario is over. Like, I, I'm not going to tie the game. So I think it's, I think it's two, it's, also thinking about all those moving parts of, hey, if I don't fall and I give and I give them the opportunity to shoot, okay, they could bank it in, they could make it, they could hit a lucky shot. This way, it's they they have to do a lot of things right. And you talk about other coaches. That also means that that other coach has gone through with his kids, her kids, how to miss the free throw, how to offensive rebound, how exactly. to break that. So I think that's one thing to really look into that situation as well. Absolutely. All right, coach. Well, now we're going to get into our last segment called quick hitters, just rapid random fire questions. Some about basketball, some not just having fun. Um, and, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. So first one, uh, in your mind, who are one, two, three, four, a couple of the best coaches that are doing the run and jump currently that people should watch. Well, Shaka Smart at Marquette, he's a big run and jump guy. VCU, he was at VCU. And again, there's so many forms of the run and jump. So it's not all, you know, like if if if, if each of you guys ran the run and jump and I run the run, ran the run and jump and we looked at, watched all three of our teams, we wouldn't know if we were running the same press because that's what motion, that's like motion offense. So you got Shaka Smart does it. Rick Pitino, obviously he's at Iona now, he's at Louisville. Big run and jump guy, uh, uh, West Virginia, uh, uh, Huggins, Huggy Bear. Mm -hmm. He presses full court uh, most of the game. And so those are the, are the top coaches in the country that do it. Uh, the thing you miss about not having a team. I love to teach. As you guys probably could tell during this interview, I love to teach. I love to watch kids grow. I love to watch teams grow. 
I never, ever, you know, once I figured out that I, if you don't worry about winning, you will win more. So then I, then I appreciated much more of the development of the kids. And I really miss that. I really miss, you know, kids get so excited about competition and whether they win or lose, obviously everybody wants to win and yes, winning's important, but it's just the development is so, so cool. All right, so you're a Wisconsin guy, so we couldn't get out of this interview by asking you what's your favorite kind of cheese. Uh, actually, it's pepper jack. I love pepper jack. Uh, when I go to Subway, that's what I put on my sandwiches. All right, the uh, career you would have choos- chosen if you didn't coach basketball. I actually, uh, for uh, quite a few years, had a pilot's license, a, v- a, v- a VFR pilot's license. I would cool. have been an airline pilot. You know, I... Cool big dream when I go, when I take flights around the country is the stewardess will run back to the, to the, uh, the, the pastors and say, our pilots have passed out. Is there anybody that can fly this plane? And I'm the first one up there. You know, I, I just, That's awesome. I just watched the, the plane go in the Hudson, uh, that movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, I, I'd love to go up there and fly one of those airline airlines. All right. So, so uh, can I can I break right. off, John? That's a, that's yeah. an interesting. Like, so how did you get your your pilot's license? Did you like what what was the backstory behind that? I was in college and I was just getting ready to graduate out of Stout grad, and there was an airstrip about halfway between uh, Menominee and Durand, and I and they gave flight lessons. So I started flight lessons there, and cool. I finished there and got my pilot's license, and I. I tell you, it has been a wonder. It was a wonderful blast to be able to fly around, go see parents, you know, go to Iowa on a weekend, go to Missouri. It was cool. It really was cool. That that is very very cool. I I am a big aviation person myself. Um, it's favorite food when you were in Qatar. Favorite place to get food or or favorite thing you discovered you really liked. If you guys ever go to Doha, and really Doha is the only real city in Qatar. When I first went there, there was 800,000 in Doha. The next time I went back to try to qualify for the Olympics, there was like 1.2 million. And the next time I, and now the next time I went back and then now Doha is up to about 2.4 million. So it's kind of growing a little bit. As you know, the World Cup was just there. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you ever get there, there's a place downtown, I can't remember the name of the place, but they have it, it, it I don't, maybe you could not consider food. It's called an Ahmed cocktail. It's, it's uh, one layer of strawberry, one layer of avocado, and one layer of some berry mixture. It's almost like a malt, but there's three separate layers. And, I, and I'm telling you, it is to die for. Mm-hmm. When I took my kids there and I took my family there, they really enjoyed that. And, I, and when uh, my manager and people in the organization they wanted me to stay longer. They all they would they knew how much I loved it. They just kept bringing them. Kept bringing them. Uh, it's called an Ahmed cocktail. It's so good. Awesome. No alcohol because obviously alcohol is not allowed in the Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, your best uh, road trip story in like D three. All right, uh, best road trip story D three. I was the first year at UW Stout. Uh, the program was was in not very good shape. We instigated the run and jump, played it all year, uh, full bore, 40 minutes a game. We finished eighth in the league, and we went down to Whitewater. Whitewater won the league, and uh, we finished eighth in the league. 
and we and we went down to Whitewater, standing room only. Whitewater was getting ready to go to the national tournament. They they had to just win a couple games in the tournament. They had won the the WIC. If you guys know the WIC, it's yep. the best basketball conference in the country. Yep. And uh, final score, we're playing the run and jump, and I got kids diving all over the place. And before the game, I said, I said, uh, why not Stout? Final score, ninety to forty nine. We won. And on the way back on the bus, which is a four-hour drive, I was on my phone calling my friends around the country. They knew I had played that night. And they said, how'd you do? And I said, well, 90-49. And they go, wow, you got hammered. <laughs> and then I let, them, I, let them talk, I let them talk a little bit, let them talk a little bit. Then they would say, what, what, what's next? I go, well, we got practice tomorrow because we won 90-49. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the uh, next time the chancellor was right in my office which was a cool deal. So it's still, it, it's still, and it always will be. There's no way that'll ever get broken. The greatest margin of victory from a one seed to an eight seed, 90 to 49. Run and jump. My, la my last one, and, and I only know this, so for those of the listeners that don't know, Coach is actually a great Twitter follow. And if, and if it's an NFL Sunday lookout, he's a really good Twitter follow. But who are some, maybe one or two or three, who are some people you enjoy following on, uh, on Twitter? You know, it's, it's going to be, obviously I'm a big Green Bay Packer fan. So I, I do a lot of Packer stuff and there's a lot of good Packer people out there. Some crazies, which is okay. You know, you, you don't, you don't have to read their stuff, but I'm a big Packer fan. I'm a big Badger fan, I'm a big Bucks fan. You know, I'm a Wisconsin uh, fan. So I really do enjoy all those people that are, that are on there. I really just, I kind of just started. I think I, I got on Twitter about January or January of last year. I know that's a year. Uh, my son kind of got me into it. And so it, it certainly, it kills any of the dead spots. You know, if I'm watching TV with my wife, Connie, uh, then what happens is I, there's a commercial I can go on Twitter and kind of look at some stuff. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting and, and uh, it's, it's fun to follow. It's really, there's, there's some nut, nut cases on there, but a lot, a lot of them are really fun. Coach, we this was an amazing episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a ton of learning for all of our listeners. I know this is going to be one of our highest listened to episodes. Um, so thank you again for, for helping us spread the passion for the game. Thanks, you guys. And anything I could ever do for you, you know I'm just a phone call away. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast in concert with the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association. Please remember to give us a five-star rating wherever you may listen. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout and subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening.